This episode is brought to you by Evolve, powered by Market-Based Dynamics, creating an environment in which people can share knowledge, be creative, and view failures as learning. Amy Edmondson was a grad student studying organizational behavior at Harvard when she got an opportunity to look into the performance of hospital teams. I was invited to join a team of physicians and nurses that were investigating medication errors in hospitals. I was studying teams, and the physicians leading this groundbreaking study of medication error wanted somebody who was able to measure the teamwork in these different hospital units and see whether, in fact, we might be able to correlate the team properties with the error rates. The idea, the hypothesis, was that good teams, teams of people who worked well together, would likely have lower error rates. You know, healthcare is a very interdependent, complex process. And when people are coordinating and talking to each other and really acting like a team, there should be fewer medication errors. She used a diagnostic survey to find out how individuals felt about the dynamics within their teams. And meanwhile, trained medical investigators, completely separately from Amy's work, gathered data on the error rates of each team. And then, once the data were in, Amy lined up the team information with the error rates to show the relationship. The first thing I noticed was that there was a significant correlation. So I felt great for about a second. And then I suddenly realized it's in the wrong direction. In other words, the data were suggesting that the better teams, according to the team survey, had more mistakes, not fewer. Now that really threw me for a loop. So why would groups of people who felt good about their work and good about their colleagues make more errors? You know, I probably chewed on it for about 15 minutes before it suddenly struck me, wait a minute. Maybe these better teams, if we believe the survey, and it was a pretty good survey, maybe the better teams aren't making more mistakes Maybe they're more able and willing to talk about them. In other words, the better teams were more likely to report errors. And when she investigated further, Amy discovered why. Some of these teams, people are quite open and they talk about mistakes. In other teams, it's very authoritarian. You know, people are very afraid of the boss. You know, they say things like, if you make a mistake around here, it gets held against you. You get put on trial. And of course, by the end of that study, I realized that I, I was on to something. She sure was. Well, greetings, all of you slightly weird, intently humble, change-driven, service-oriented, standard bearers of Zaponian culture. Adam Francis here with this, the latest edition of the Zappos podcast. According to recent research, psychological safety is the most important factor in highly functioning teams. So why do some teams have psychological safety in great supply and others don't? And what can teams and leaders do to have more of it? That is coming up in just a bit. Stay with us.
it is a phenomenon that is familiar to most of us. I mean, we've all been there. You know, you've had friend groups in grade school or high school or workplaces where you absolutely feel this is a place where I can let down my guard or this is a place where I cannot. In 1999, Amy Edmondson published a paper in which she gave this feeling a name. And last December, she published a book, The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth. She's a professor at Harvard Business School now. And when we spoke in January, I asked her to start us off by giving a working definition of psychological safety. It's an environment that's safe for interpersonal risk-taking, by which I mean speaking up with questions, concerns, mistakes, wacky ideas, all of those things that just bring that little bit of risk. Psychological safety is the sense that, no, I can do that here. I can be myself here. Yeah, I mean, this sounds like it's an inherently good thing, and um, no doubt people listening are, you know, nodding their heads in agreement. Um, so if it, if it makes so much sense to most, if not all of us, why is creating a psychologically safe workplace so difficult to pull off? I think it's hard to pull off for two reasons. One is that we human beings are naturally risk-averse, and we're naturally sensitive to and worried about others' impressions of us. So we hold back. And we're especially risk-averse in hierarchies, and most workplaces are hierarchies. So without meaning to, most people are likely to be sort of managing others' impressions of them, and that just leads them to hold back. You know, when I've got something to say that I know will be absolutely welcomed by everybody, I say it. But in that gray zone where I'm not quite sure. Is it safe to admit a mistake around here? Is it safe to ask for help around here? Those are the moments where people are just naturally likely to hold back, and most workplaces don't do enough to counteract that instinct. And just to be clear, we're not talking about a work environment where people are always sweet and over polite and everything's always warm and fuzzy. We're talking about an environment where people feel empowered to be honest. It, exactly. In fact, nice is not at all what we're talking about because oftentimes people, just as you said, interpret nice to mean, uh, you know, I have to just say only nice things to you. And then in the hallway, of course, I'll tell my other colleague what I really think. So a psychologically safe environment, and the term might not imply this, but what I mean is an environment where we are candid. We are direct. That means sometimes we'll say things that might sound hurtful, but we'll you know, we're, we're doing it in the spirit of learning. We're doing it in the spirit of getting the best possible work done. In your book, you write that psychological safety is something that happens at the team level. Why is that a, an important distinction? Because it's, first of all, it's not a personality factor. It's not that some people are more psychologically safe than others. It's that it's an emergent property of a group. When a group of people start to work together on something just without much time going by, they start to kind of have a shared sense of what it's like around here. You know, is this, a, is this a great team? Is this a team where I can bring my full self? Is this a team where I have to wear a mask or not? And it just tends to be that emergent property of a group. And that also means that within a company, different groups will have different levels of psychological safety. 
So as an outsider, when you walk into a company, and when I say you, I mean you, Amy Edmondson, can you sense whether psychological safety is present? Mm. Is it a palpable thing? Or is it something that a person can only know and sense if he or she is involved in a particular group? It's a little bit of both. I think there. I think at the extreme levels, you can sense when people are overly guarded. You know, when they're they look like they might have something to say, but they're holding back. You can sense that. But I think you know, think about a cartoon. You know, and in so many cartoons, you have a thought bubble. It's you know, in real life, we actually don't know whether someone's got a thought bubble above their head. That's saying, gee, I wonder, you know, can I say this now? Or they're saying to themselves, what that person just said is utterly wrong, but I can't say anything about it. So, you know, I think other than at the extremes or when you know people, if you know people really well, you know when they're holding back. You know when they're being more guarded. But but, but walking into – with that said, there are workplaces where you walk in and you just get an immediate sense that there's – there's warmth, there's energy, um, there's there's humor, you know, that people seem to be enjoying each other's company and they seem energized by it. And and so right away my my antennae are up and I'm thinking, okay, this is probably a psychologically safe environment, but I would probably need to know a little bit more before I'd be sure. Yeah, when it comes to those thought bubbles above people's heads, um it makes me wonder, is that one of the reasons why the importance of this concept in the workplace has been so elusive? I mean, if people aren't saying what's on their minds, we don't know what they're thinking. Um, so might this be one of the reasons it's taken human beings so long to figure this out? Yes, yes. Because we cannot see, because we can't see what wasn't said, we don't know what we're missing. You know, we don't know that in fact, we had the data we needed to avoid that crisis. We don't know that, in fact, someone had that brilliant idea in our own ranks that our competitor just launched, you know, last week and are, are, are using that to, you know, steal market share from us. We, we don't know that it was there because we didn't see the thought bubble. And why has this become such an important concept at this time in human history? Why are managers and leaders and people who are concerned about the welfare of a company or team mm. focusing more now um, on psychological safety? Because more and more, the work we do is intimately tied up in knowledge, in ingenuity, in creativity, in information, right? So, you know, the, the very currency of our work, whether you're working in a factory or in a consulting firm, is knowledge, is information, is ideas. And so, the, you know, that's where our value comes from. And when we are leaving some portion of that knowledge, you know, unsaid, unleveraged, that can amount to real consequences, real loss. So you first coined this term, psychological safety, uh, way back in 1999. And the idea didn't take hold right away. It took a while for the world to catch up with you. Fast forward almost two decades, Google conducts this study known as Project Aristotle, which tries to figure out which are the most important elements in highly functioning teams. And they test out a range of hypotheses, a range of theories before realizing that the most important factor is this one that you identified years ago. <laughs> um, then the New York Times sends a reporter to write about Google's work on Teams 
And I'm wondering, how did it feel to see your idea popularized and celebrated in a way that you couldn't have dreamed of as a young graduate student when you were beginning this work? It felt, inc- well, it, I have to tell you, I was blown away on February 28th, 2016, to wake up and see the New York Times Magazine article by Charles Duhigg, what Google learned from its quest to build the perfect team. Of course, the the headline really caught my attention because I'm interested in teams and I study teams. And so I wanted to know what did Google learn in its quest to build the perfect team? Or more, more specifically, the subtitle was New Surprising Research yields information about why some teams thrive and others falter. I thought, wow, I need to know. What's the secret sauce? And, of course, I start reading, and a third of the way through the article, it turns out that the secret sauce, you know, they tried all these things, you know, gender mix, whatever, you name it. They have data. They have analytic power. They were looking very carefully at everything they could find, and nothing worked. Nothing, that is, until they encountered, it says in the article, the concept of psychological safety in academic papers, no less, and then everything fell into place. So, of course, that was a very thrilling moment uh, for me. So you had to read about your own influence on Google's approach to team building in the New York Times. And I had no idea. You know, I had no idea they were, were studying it. I had no idea they had read the paper or used my measure or anything. And, of course, I was absolutely thrilled to learn about that. Well, it seems like the New York Times story underscores also, and again, why we've overlooked this concept for for so long, because we tend to assume that highly functioning teams are the result of highly functioning individuals. And we tend to forget that chemistry and emotional well-being play such an outsized role in group performance. Right. I think we're so biased toward valuing the you know, the technical, the IQ, the the sense of that's where the action is. And maybe this other stuff matters around the edges. But in knowledge work, of course, this matters right at the very core. Because if you have really talented, really well-educated, really smart people, but you can't, you don't hear from them, you don't get what's in their head out in the workplace, then you're not getting that value. And when you looked at the results of Project Aristotle, this study at Google, What did you take away from it? Did you read it and say, yep, that's right, nothing new to see here? Or did you learn something from Google's conclusions about the factors that make the perfect team? I I did learn some things from their study. And, you know, first of all, two two big things. One is, you know, it's a very nice set. Ultimately, they came up with five factors. And and then as Rosofsky, Julie Rosofsky, who led the study, put it, psychological safety was far and away the most important of the five. It's, and then she says this wonderful line, it's the underpinning of the other four. But the other four is a, are a very good list. Um, it's impact, that people believe that the work they're doing matters, like it makes a difference, you know, for the company, for the customer, whatever it is, right? Number two, they find it personally meaningful. Like I think I'm working on something that matters, that, that you know, that's meaningful to me. Number three, um, that there's a certain amount of, of, of structure and clarity about roles and goals and things like that. I think we all recognize that that stuff matters. And number four, that 
I can depend on my colleagues, right? There's the dependability. If I look to my right and I look to my left, I know that you'll follow through on what you said you would do. So those are the five factors with, as they put it, psychological safety being the most powerful statistically um, and the underpinning of the others. So that was one thing I learned. I thought it's a very clean and, and thoughtful set of factors. The other thing I learned was that if you had asked me before I knew of that study for my prediction, you know, I'd done work in the hospital, I've done work in frontline call center workers, factory workers, people up and down the corporate chain. Um, However, if you'd asked me about my priors about Google, a place which is incredibly hard to to get a job in. You know, they're putting you through all sorts of cognitive interviews, and these people are super smart, super well-educated, confident. And if you had said, do you think psychological safety would be the defining factor explaining performance at Google? I would have said, oh, I don't think so, right? Because I think people are not going to be guarded. I think people know who they are. They're going to just be all jumping right in there, energized, et cetera. So that put me in my place. Like, I was really wrong about that. Like, this stuff matters even in the high-powered elite world of technology. Tony Shea, uh, the CEO at Zappos, said to me recently in an interview that if a solution to a problem were obvious, then you're probably looking at a problem that's already been solved. (laughs) And I'm wondering what you've observed about how psychological safety plays into this arena where teams are working on and attempting to solve really hard problems. Mm. Why is psychological safety so essential in an innovation context? It matters. Psychological safety matters even more in innovation context than anywhere else. And that and that's because the ratio of failures to successes is so much higher in an innovation context than say in a in a routine production context. And when we, by the nature of the work that we have to do, are required to encounter failure along the way to success, we just desperately need to feel willing to speak up, right? Willing to be open and willing to take the risks. It's not just being willing to talk about the failures we encounter. We have to be willing to try things even without a lot of confidence that they'll work. Like I have a hypothesis. I think it's a good hypothesis, but I'm not, conf- you know, I'm not 100% sure it's going to work out. And you never innovate unless you're willing to try those things without that certainty that it's going to work out. Well, let's talk about Google X, uh, a company you write about in your book. And this is the company within Google that was established to innovate and to come up with new business prospects for the company. Um, but the purpose of Google X is also to attempt moonshot after moonshot, you know, moonshot being that proverbial metaphor we use to talk about doing the really hard things. Right. Um, and it seems like at Google X, teams are encouraged to fail. Yes. They're encouraged to try to yeah. break these ideas that they're in love with to the point where teams are dancing with failure quite frequently. Yes. And in that setting, one of the key challenges and one of the things that I think does take psychological safety to do it well is to be willing shut a project down when it's failing, right? because there's a kind of very human instinct to think, okay, it's not working, but maybe I'll just try again and try again. And meanwhile, we're throwing good money after bad. So people have to be, it's very human. Again, I want to be associated with a success, not a failure. So it's human to just persist 
longer than your actual, you know, intellect knows, you know, is is likely to work out. So you you want to have it be um, almost celebrated, and they go out of their way at Google X to kind of find rituals and ways to celebrate the shutting down of things because celebrate the learning we got from that. Celebrate the fact that we now know that path doesn't work. You you write that Astro Teller, who runs Google X, says he hates failure, but he also wants to um, to emphasize that he loves the learning that comes from failure. It seems like that's an important cultural distinction, right? Uh, at Google X, right, and it's a great it's a great uh, way to frame what they're doing, right? Because it's a little you know ingenuous to say, oh, I love failure. Let's have a love affair with failure. No, that's just going to you know, end up, people are going to end up thinking, yeah, they don't really mean it. We love success. So if you say, I love learning, that's a little bit closer. And then you say, well, the only way to learn is to act in, in, in new territory. I mean, for something that's in the textbook, I can open the textbook and find out what works. But if we're in new territory together, which Google X certainly is, then the only way to get that new information that will be in the future textbooks is to try something. And sometimes we're right, but more often we're wrong. The other thing that's been happening here at Zappos in recent weeks um, that seems to be worth bringing up in this conversation is that we've been talking, some of us have been talking about the word failure a lot um, and the meaning and semantics of the word failure. And there are some people at Zappos who are very comfortable with that term, um, who don't mind you know, identifying failure, pointing it out where they see it. And using the word. And there are others who are uncomfortable with the term who feel Mm -hmm. that it de-emphasizes learning and puts things that don't work out in a um, in a negative context. Mm. Where do you weigh in on this discussion? I think it helps. I mean, to, to help us get unhung up on the semantics, it helps to recognize and be very explicit about the the fact that there are different kinds of failures. And indeed, there are some kinds of failures that we should not celebrate, that we should be sort of, you know, um, unhappy about, you know, that we should put our, we still should learn, but we should put our heads together and say, hmm, how do we make sure that never happens again? You know, for, for a simple example, a, um, a worker in a factory doing something dangerous who doesn't put on the safety goggles and then something bad happens um, and to his eyesight. That's a preventable failure. It's not good. It should be, you know, um, we should be very upset about it and we should figure out ways to have that never happen again. That's very different than you're at Google X and, you you know, no one has ever tried this crazy thing before and you try it. And by the way, it was a thoughtful hypothesis that led you to try this particular experiment, Right? It wasn't just, you weren't just, you know, randomly trying things. You think about it. You think about what we know. You think about first principles and you try it and lo and behold, you're wrong. You have to just train yourself to say that kind of failure is good. So I, I talk about three kinds of failure. Preventable, which is never good. Complex, which is never good, but I think we have to be quite tolerant of them. Complex failures are those that happen because a novel set of things happened that had never happened before. You know, classic example might be the the complete uh, shutting down of the Wall Street subway station in New York during Superstorm Sandy. The hurricane did it. You know, you can you can start to say all the different things that were that contributed to that station being flooded 
you know, the way it was designed and so on. But nothing like that had ever happened before. So it's a complex failure. It's still bad. You yeah, know, you, you can't blame someone for designing that particular right. subway station in that particular way because exactly. something like Hurricane Sandy had just never happened before. So they couldn't anticipate it. Right. And that subway had been there in place for 100 years. But you really draw a very thick line in the sand between the preventable and the complex failures, that, which are both bad, um, but still we can learn from them, and the intelligent failure. So, I mean, I think if at Zappos you're saying, well, is this is this an intelligent failure? Then we got to just train ourselves. I mean, feel free to give it a different name, but train ourselves to say yes, right? Bravo. You were mm-hmm. brave. You tried something new. It didn't work the way we'd hoped, but it was great data. So when it comes to talking about failure or mistakes or whatever term we decide to use to point out that thing we're talking about, it sounds like you're saying it's still important to explicitly talk about those things um, and that a fearless organization, a psychologically safe organization, can and will talk about missteps openly. Yes, and, and, and you have to hold our, you know, we have to hold ourselves accountable um, for making accurate distinctions and because I think if we don't, then we won't learn the right lessons and we won't learn enough to, you know, just keep on going forward and innovating and doing great things in the world. And and just by the way, I do make a distinction between mistakes and failures. I mean, failures technically encompasses the concept of mistakes, but mistakes by definition are things where we knew better. And now it doesn't, it doesn't make a mistake shameful, but it's it's by definition old territory. You know, if no one has ever done this before, you can't call it a mistake. I see. Because there was no, you know, there was no formula uh, in place. Um, Now, I still think, you know, human beings make mistakes. That's our birthright, right? We make mistakes. So we have to be good to ourselves and each other. And we have to learn fast from mistakes so that we don't keep making the same ones. So there will be team leaders listening to this within Zappos. Um, and so I wanted to ask you, if if a team leader or for a team member, for that matter, um, if anyone is wondering whether there are sufficient levels of psychological safety on a particular team, is there a way to examine or measure it at the group level? Well, there's two ways to think about that question. You know, one is what can I do to kind of assess how are we doing? And I'll respond to that in a second. The other is, you know, what can I do, no matter how we're doing, to make it safer? Like to keep pushing us in the right direction toward, you know, toward candor, toward openness. So how can you measure it? Well, it ra- the, the ways of measuring it range from survey. There are good survey measures that you can use. Throw those into employee surveys you've got going already and, you know, kind of look for how we're doing, and and more importantly than the means are the differences. You know, are, are there if there are pockets where people really aren't feeling safe, you know, let's give them some love. Let's go. Let's go find out how we can help them. You know, they tend to. One of the things we find we know about these these survey items is that people who work closely together tend to answer them similarly, right? So that it it really there there are between. You know, the between team member scores are much tighter than the between team scores. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's kind of answers the question of how could we do this somewhat, you know, systematically across groups at Zappos or elsewhere. Um, but if I'm, you know, if I'm a team leader, how do I know 
um, if my team feels safe. And, you know, I, I don't necessarily. So I think I want to always err on the side of considering that they might not. So then I'm, I'm pushing into my second question, which is, what do I need to do kind of routinely to make it easier for people to bring the talent they have to this project, to this team? For example, Astra Teller does a good job at Google X by saying to people, you know, I am just so excited about learning. Like here we are in brand new territory trying to do almost impossible things. And so I'm, what am I doing if I'm Teller in that moment? I'm naming the territory. I'm saying this is really hard and really pioneering. Now, once I've said that, the implicit message is there's no way you should get it right the first time. Right, so, mm. so now you don't have to be Google X and Astro Teller. Wherever you work, whatever project or work you're leading, it's helpful to point out the level of uncertainty or challenge or both. And so you're saying that by encouraging team members to feel vested in this journey into uncertainty, you're making space for honest feedback. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just got to be clear. You got to get people on the same page. Like there's got to be a rational case for speaking up made or else why would I do it? I mean, I'm naturally going to hold back. The only reason I'm going to be willing to share, you know, what I'm thinking when, when I'm not 100 percent confident it's going to be welcome is if a leader, you know, a team leader, manager, middle manager has kind of reminded us repeatedly of what's at stake, of, of, you know, the uncertainty, of the value, of the synergy we can create when we work together. And so that's like an invitation. It's an implicit invitation. And then I'd go a mm. step further and I'd say, make it explicit. And by that, I simply mean ask questions. Ask good questions. And a good question, of course, is one that you don't know the answer to. It's not rhetorical. And you're talking about team leaders again in this case. Yes. Okay. At Zappos, we call circle leaders lead links. So you're saying a good lead link, a good team leader, asks good questions. Yes. Ask good questions because, you know, there are also there will be people who are naturally quieter or more reserved. And, and so I want to say, you know, I want to often be saying, hey, Adam, what do you think about this? And now, in that moment, you would feel very strange not answering, right? It would be quite awkward. Mm -hmm. So you answer. And so what I've done is give you this little mini platform, this moment of my attention and my listening. And, of course, that's the related uh, leadership behavior is to really listen. Don't look at your phone. You know, be listening. Demonstrate interest in what others are saying. One of the things you write about in your book uh, is that this isn't a one-and-done kind of thing, um, where a team acquires psychological safety and then has it forever. Um, the way you write about it, it sounds more like a garden, where you tend to it, you care for it, you water and weed it. <laughs> um, it's an ongoing process to actually reach this threshold where you have high levels of psychological safety at a company or on a team. Right. And, and part of the reason why it's not one and done and it's a constant cultivation and, and tending is that we're swimming upstream against a tide of very powerful human instincts. You know, the instinct to agree with the boss, old as the hills, right? The instinct uh, to, you know, blame someone else when things go wrong, but 
you know, claim credit for successes, the, the instinct to, uh, to remain quiet when it's uncomfortable information. So those are instincts. So those need constant tending because you can't just swim upstream. You won't. People don't swim upstream indefinitely. They need encouragement. They need people to sort of part the waters if they can. Well, in closing, I wonder what's next for you Um, You know, I mean, you had this lucid breakthrough in your academic career where you identified one of the elemental factors (laughs) in strong teams. Um, Now you've written a book. Where do you go next with this work? Um, Well, for me, you know, I've done this research over the years that, you know, I and others who picked up on the construct that show very, I think, very definitively that it matters, you know, that psychological safety has consequences for learning and performance. That's a different thing than saying I know how to fix it. But I gave you, and in the book, I write about things that I've seen from cases, um, but I haven't done the research, um, and I don't have a perfect design for how do you fix it. You know, I can give suggestions. I can say what I've seen in the field, but I haven't figured out the best or most systematic way, and I doubt I ever will, but I think it's worth trying to really transform workplaces to be the kinds of workplaces that are energized, playing to win, learning-oriented, psychologically safe places. So I have to ask, uh, when are you coming to Zappos to check us out? I would love to come out. In fact, I'm, I think I'm overdue uh, for, for a visit. I've, <laughs> I've admired you from afar. It is a very curious place, a place like nowhere else. I would love to come out. I mean, you guys are special, and I promise uh, to do that. Amy Edmondson is a professor at Harvard Business School and the author of The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth. Amy, thanks so much for your time today and for your great book. Thank you. It was great talking with you. Well, that is it for today's episode. This podcast wouldn't be possible without help from Angel Sugg, Jean Markell, Jamie Naughton, Krista Foley, Dan Habel, Tyler Williams, Philip So, and Tony Shea. Special thanks this week to Amy Edmondson and to Craig McDonald in Boston for engineering help with this program. Our theme song was written and produced by Philip So and myself. Additional music on the program produced by yours truly. And I'm Adam Francis. Tune in next week for another edition of the Zappos Podcast. Thank you for listening to this Zappos podcast brought to you by Evolve, helping make entrepreneurs and lead links more successful. Learn more at evolve.zappos.biz.